I'm Modesta Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. Today, we're of course joined by Homer Abedin, who is Chief of Staff for Hillary Clinton. In fact, she's been Hillary's right-hand woman for quite a while now. Initially, Homer began her career as an intern in the White House back in 1996, assigned to the then First Lady Hillary Clinton. In 2000, Homer served as personal advisor to Hillary during her successful campaign to become the New York Senator. She also worked on both of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaigns, and in 2008, when Clinton lost the Democratic presidential nomination to Barack Obama, and in 2016, when she won the Democratic nomination, making history as the first ever woman to secure the backing of a major US party. After mainly being behind the scenes for many years, Homer's memoir, Both and A Life in Many Worlds, was published earlier this month. In her book, Homer speaks about her journey on the front line of American politics, yet the book covers much more than that. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's extraordinary and a very powerful story. And, it's, and it made it deservedly to the New York Times bestseller list. We are delighted to have Homer here today, sharing her personal journey. So without further ado, I'd like to move on to my first question for you, Homer. We all know that 911 marked the beginning of war and terror and drastically changed the lives of American listeners, who were now seen as the other. Being on the front line of politics, at the time you worked for Hillary Clinton, who was the New York Senator, do you feel like your experience was different from ordinary Muslim Americans? Did the people you worked with care about the fact that you're Muslim and had grown up in Saudi Arabia? So, Modesser, first of all, thank you for having me on. Yes, I mean, I, um, I am lucky to be that person who is the product of two immigrant parents, um, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother, left their countries, their families in the 60s. Uh, for them, education was a religion. And there were Fulbright scholars who met uh, the University of Pennsylvania and uh, moved uh, to Michigan when I was, uh, actually before I was born, I was born in Michigan. And when I was two, my father um, was diagnosed with uh, renal failure and told, it's one of the first lines I write in my book, which is uh, my father was told he was dying. So he went out and he lived. And uh, two months after that diagnosis, we moved for a sabbatical year into Saudi Arabia. And that was 42 years ago and a little bit longer actually. But in part for me, um, one of the things I'm really grateful to my parents for is that they raised us exploring the other constantly. We spent our childhood, first of all, we lived in a very international community. I went to an international school surrounded by girls from all over the world and traveled the world, explored other countries and cultures and religions. And my, my father's whole existence his life's work was exploring Muslim minority conditions around the world. I mean, his specific expertise was in Europe, but really throughout the world. So he, here we were, little kids being taken around to you know, monasteries in Greece to talk to the other, since you use that word, because my father raised my siblings and I not to believe in the concept of not trying to understand the other. So he would have conversations and his colleagues would say, don't have conversations in spaces where even angels fear to tread. But he forced those conversations. He thought it was important to understand. So when I walked into the White House, as you said, in 1996, 21-year-old intern, there were not a lot of people who looked like me. I was lucky to be in an environment where my differences, my different perspective was really welcomed. So as a 21-year-old, people were asking me questions like, what is Ramadan and why are you fasting? And the first time you know, Ramadan was actually celebrated in the White House was in the Clinton administration. It's a tradition 
that has been celebrated every year since then. Um, and I, you know, had the, the pr great privilege to travel around the world on behalf of my country, in many cases, as the lone Muslim staff person, you know, to the King, to King Hussein of Jordan's funeral, or, you know, I write throughout the book, these experiences that I would have, because I knew the privilege that my, thanks to the hard work of my parents, the enormous privilege that I had, that I could go to refugee camps in Macedonia and talk to Kosovar Muslims. I went to Iraq during the war, met with Iraqi women, Afghani women, knowing that you know my life circumstances are very different. But I I was glad to have a seat at the table, and you know, 9/11 for anyone who lived in New York has changed us and shaped us. It's why I wrote a whole chapter in the book about it in ways I think we're still trying to understand. I was lucky to be in an environment where. No one even knew. I mean, I write in the book that I was walking around, walking through the pile, walking to ho into hospitals and triage centers, taking down notes from, you know, to how to help people um, recover, just try to move on with their lives, knowing that I grew up in the country that 15 of the hijackers had come from. And no, I did not um, face uh, any adversity. I know that was not the case for many of my fellow Muslims, but I have always believed that that's why it's important to have a seat at the table, to raise your voice when you do have a seat at that table. And being in two administrations, first, you know, Bill Clinton's and then Barack Obama's, where I felt like that perspective was respected, explored, uh, and really championed. Thank you, Huba. In your book, you speak about how, as a teenager, you admired the British Iranian journalist, Christian Amantor, and you wanted to go into journalism. Being the right-hand woman to one of the most prominent American political figures was almost accidental. Now, having had first-hand experience of the media, both towards yourself and Hillary, has this changed your views on the media's role in influencing politics and your opinion on a career you once aspired to? You know, Modesto, it's one of the many reasons I wrote the book. Um, when I, I do share the story of being a teenager, sitting on the carpet in our living room in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, watching Operation Desert Storm, you know, unfold on TV and seeing a face on TV, Chris, as you said, Christian Amanpour. And to me, it was the notion of seeing something, making it, a possibility. That's not what I was used to seeing, certainly not living um, uh, where I live. And so she gave me this, you know, a, a concrete ambition. And I walked into the White House, uh, assuming that I would have uh, an internship in the White House press office, um, and then ended up being placed in the First Lady's policy office. And I remember calling my mother from this brick cell phone, and she was still in Jeddah, and calling mom and saying, I don't understand. I'm supposed to be, how am I going to be Christian Amanpour if I'm not in the press office? And I remember my mom said, maybe plan A doesn't always work out, but you know, try, you know, try plan B. It might, it might turn out pretty well. And it turned out, it turned out really well. But to the point that you're making, I did end up in public service and politics. It is why I chose to write throughout the book about the experiences and what it is to be a woman in politics and the challenges. And in 2000, when Hillary was running for the Senate uh, as first lady. The, the famous moment where you know, her opponent marches across the debate stage and shakes a piece of paper in his hand demanding that she sign it. And it was the first time I saw close hand what women were up against. And in 2008 and 2016, you know, I believe that in 2008, we as a country, socially, culturally, we did not know how to even deal with the blatantly sexist comments that people made. So when Hillary was on stage, the only woman running for president, and people could say things like, I don't like your hair, or your jacket is not so attractive, or you're likable enough, or, you know, conservative media, you know, uh, 
commentators could say things like, when Hillary Clinton comes on TV, I want to cross my legs. We all laughed. We all giggled. It was this nervous. And when I say we, that includes those of us in the game. We all assumed this was the price we had to be to pay, you know, to be in the game. But it wasn't easy and certainly wasn't easy in, in 2016. And that's why for me, it is not just about um, women continuing to raise their voices and stepping up. It's having us changing culturally um, how we respect women in the space. I think we're still scared of women's power. And uh, I'm raising a nine-year-old boy. And one of the things I want to teach my son is to um, how to honor and respect women as equals. Like, I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a whole generation. My brother, I hope, is on this Zoom. The, my brother, by far, is the smartest Abedin at the table, um, for sure, way more than me. But I share this story. I think it got cut from the book when my mom went to Beijing um, for the uh, to Wairo, actually, the NGO conference in 1995, the year that Hillary made that famous speech, women's rights or human rights or human rights or women's rights. I had gone to the preparatory conference with my mom in, at the UN in New York. But in September, the Aberdeen she took with her to that conference was my brother, Hassan. And when they were at the conference, my mother tells the story that in all the jostling for women uh, to get into the speech where Hillary was speaking, you know, somebody pushed my brother and said, what are you doing here? This is a conference for us. This is a conference for women. And my mother stepped in front of my brother and said, it is just as important for my son to understand the rights, responsibilities, and equality that women are entitled to as men. And so to me, it's everyone needs to have a seat at the table and everyone bears responsibility because we've done pretty well. Hillary Clinton has made extraordinary history on behalf of women and girls in this country, but we have a long, long way to go. Thank you, Huma. Um, next, I'd like to welcome Keith Ellison to join us by now. He's, of course, the, the Minnesota Attorney General and the first ever Muslim elected to the US Congress. Thank you for joining us today, Keith. Over to you. Hey there. Salaam alaikum. I'm just thrilled about this book. I really believe that you know, Muslim leaders like yourself have to write books, right? Have to write articles. This is, this is about building a a, a suite of experiences that people can partake of and mix and match and, and, and learn from. And you have among the most unique experiences of, it, of any Muslim ever American ever lived. So you had to put your thoughts down on paper. So thank you for doing it. And, and I know it's not easy, right? It's a, you, you got to pour out a lot of your heart when you write that book, didn't you? I did. And, you know, actually, Keith, it ended up being real therapy. And I, I as, 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 you know, I opened the book with this notion of everyone has a story to tell. I've always loved, you know, listening to stories, absorbing stories. And I'm proud to share my story. And people who've read the book often come back. And the, you know, what the stories that speak to them the most are, are, are growing up in Saudi Arabia, the, the family that I had, my father, you know, who would tell us things like our, you know, your eyes are at the front of your head for a reason. It's to look forward, but that it was important to understand history. And I believe my father always thought I was going to be a writer because um, when I was little and my, my, our house was filled with books, my, my dad brought um, a book uh, called Silas Marner back from his trip to London. And I was 10 and I didn't understand it was above my head. And I read the introduction and I realized that George Eliot was a woman. So I go to my father and said, why did um, this woman, Marianne Evans, have to use a man's name to write her book? And my father said, in the Victorian era, women weren't taken seriously as writers, so she had to use a man's name. But don't worry, when you grow up and you write your book, 
you will use your own name and everyone will take it seriously. And I do think the, you know, that sharing your own story for everybody is an important one. And I think for me, um, I carry with great pride the heritage I come from, you know, mm-hmm. the notion of having a history where I had a grandmother who had to fight, demand to go to school in India because girls wow. were just sent to school in the early 1900s. And because it was so shameful for a girl to leave the house, she had to leave from the back of the house on an ox cart to be educated every day. And I owe my, every trip on Air Force One, every time I walked in the halls of Congress with you, when you were in Congress, I owe all these privileges to what she fought for, what my parents fought for. And so it is with tremendous, you know, pride that I, you know, I, I share my story. And there were hard parts, but, um, but really, and particularly what we shared together, you and I, the 2012 um, experience and you and I being on the ISIS hit list, like all the ways that our religion, you know, Keith, I write, it is why I write in the book, I start, you know, when I was in the White House and the bombings in Africa, the first, you know, uh, the 93 uh, attack on the World Trade Center, see, the USS Cole in 2000, seeing in real time how these atrocious acts were really turning you know, putting this cloud on, on our faith and how, why it was even ever more important. Why when President Obama went to Cairo in 2009, I, mean, I was so honored to be on that trip. The first time a United States president of the United States specifically did a speech reaching out to the Muslim community and saying, basically what my father said 30 years ago, we have to come to the table as equals. We have to show respect for each other and understand each other. So now I feel like in 2012, when you and I were put on some, or at least I was put on a list and you came out to defend me, really, it's now I'm getting confused. There were so many times our, our faith was turned into a boogeyman. It, and Senator McCain went to the floor of the Senate to defend not just you know me, but other Muslim Americans, senior Americans in government who were accused of essentially being spies, essentially being spies. And then President Obama goes to defend us also which is amazing in defending our family name, but also they were standing up to the basic principles and ideals upon which uh, our country stood for. And I knew that these rumors, these lies, the fake news about our community and the you know, Muslim leaders in government were working when I go and I write the story in the book, when I accompanied Hillary on an official secretary of state trip to Egypt and a man across the table from her said, we're not sure we trust your government because you have this, you know, extremist, you know, advisor, a woman, you know, named Toma Abedin, who's, you know, whispering in your ear. And of course, Hillary says, oh, you mean, Oma, she's right over there. You should go talk to her. <laughs> but it is important to just step up and not be afraid to have these conversations, because otherwise, I feel like 2012 was just the appetizer. In 2016 in this country, boy, it was taken to a whole new level. Did we really, truly become the other? We did. You know, Modassar, I wonder if you allow me to ask uh, Homa a question. Oh. <laughs> okay, so we go through all this stuff. On the one hand, you got extremist Muslims putting us on lists and crazy stuff like that. On the other hand, you have all these other Americans who don't know what Islam is, are very afraid of it, and are happy yes. to whip up hysteria around it based on nothing. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a state, a city, an unincorporated township, nothing that has established Sharia law anywhere in the United States. And yet, seem like on January 6th, these people are doing actually crazy stuff and aren't getting the same kind of treatment. Did that strike you as ironic? 
uh, it certainly did. It is, um, you know, I think of all the things that I don't believe would have happened if Hillary had won in 2016 and uh, January 6th is um, no doubt pretty high on that. No list. question. Pretty high on that list. It is. It is. I now look at what happened in 2008, um, these accusations against then Senator Obama, these, oh, you know, just suggestions of, you know, questions raised around his Muslim heritage. Um, and I put that in quotations now. And the fact that he sailed through and Senator McCain defended him, that that was a canary in the coal mine. It was right, really right. the seeds of just the fear and of the many reasons you have. You know, I've been asked questions by reporters who said, oh, was it intentional that you share so much about your faith in the book? And the answer is, if you understand what it is to be a Muslim, it is a whole way of life. And so I do write in detail about what it is to to be part of the ummah that I was part of in Saudi Arabia, then to land, frankly, in Hillary land, where I had another kind of ummah, you know, a, a source of support and community. But yes, to explain to people that this faith is actually not so different from some of the things they believe. So I've been sitting with my Christians friends in the last three weeks who said, I didn't understand. You believe in Jesus? You believe in Moses? Like all these things that just seem because, you know, there's been such a big cloud. Um, it, and it is, it's about understanding and sharing and listening. And I, I hope to be having more of those conversations in the coming weeks and months, because I think they're so important to have. Thank you so much, Keith, for taking out time from your busy schedule and joining us today. Now, Homer, in 2016, you were the vice chair of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign when she won the nomination, but lost the race to Donald Trump, although winning the popular vote. Do you believe that at the time, America was simply not ready for a female president? And with Kamala Harris as the current VP, are we closer to this becoming a reality? I think there's actual, first of all, I appreciate that you noted that 3 million more people voted for her and uh, that she did win the popular vote as Democrats have tended to do in the last 20 years and certainly in our presidential elections. Yes, I do think uh, this country uh, has a problem uh, seeing uh, women in executive uh, leadership positions. I don't think it's a theory. There's research that 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 certainly proves this. Women, um, and you know, I real I know Debbie is listening. But as I as I understand it, you know, women ha you have an easier time running for positions like Congress than mayor, governor, and certainly president. And just look at how many Fortune 500 CEOs and companies are are led by women. It is hard. It is why I wrote in such detail in 2016 and also in 2008 how hard it was and. 2008, when she won that primary in New Hampshire, Hillary, um, the presidential primary in New Hampshire, it was history. She had made history. The first question she was asked by reporters of both genders was, how do you, how do you explain how you narrowly edged out then, you know, Senator Obama as opposed to sort of embracing what she had done? In 2016, I mean, I write these stories in the book about how we would get so much conflicting advice. So people would say, I don't like her jackets, they're too long, or her voice is annoying, or her hair should be this color, or does she ever make a person today? You know, she looks, you know, she looks tired. And all things that, you know, male candidates just do not have to endure. I talk about the hundreds of hours she had to sit in the hair chair to get hair and makeup done and to go shopping for clothes. And I share a story in a book about a Hollywood director calling me and saying, I want to give her some media training. And I said, okay, great. Who, who do you think her model should be? And he said, yeah, well, her husband. I said, excellent, great. Anybody else? President Obama, excellent. Both amazing communicators, communicators for their generations, both men. Do you have any women that you would say, 
you know, she could model herself after. And the answer was just silence because she is the model. There was no, you know, there was no, there was no precedent. Um, and then one of my favorites was this man uh, who, this media consultant who said to me, she looks very angry when she's speaking. And um, when men are speaking um, in a loud tone, they're passionate. And when women do it, they seem angry. And his suggestion was to put a picture of her grandchild on the podium. I think Debbie is probably rolling her eyes right now on the podium. And so then she would look down and be happy. And so she would look happy. Um, so the advice was endless and it was, it, it, it really, in the end, um, I think was one of the factors uh, in, in how difficult it was uh, for her to win in the end, one of the many factors. And that's why I end the book with our vice president, because I do think already, you know, she was already in the club of firsts become, before she became vice president. Kamala Harris had made history in California. Um, and even now, I mean, sometimes I read headlines about her and it just, I find it infuriating that it's, you know, question marks already. Oh, why is she going to, you know, Paris, this murky mission? Well, actually the mission's very clear and then the article goes on to state it. And so I think that the only way forward is number one, for women to continue, um, you know, to raise their voices, but we have to, and it's one of the themes in my book. Also, I think women need to support other women and, um, and, 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 uh, we have a ways to go. I try to be optimistic at the end of the book, but at the same time, it's not, things are not going to change uh, unless there is a massive societal, cultural, conscious, and subconscious change in how we approach um, our fear of power and leadership in women. Thank you, Hilary. Now we have uh, Debbie Almontaser joining us. She's a force and a, an award-winning educator and speaker. Besides that, Debbie is also CEO of the Bridging Cultures Group, Thank you for being able to join us, Debbie. Over to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Medessa. And Huma, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on this huge accomplishment. I'm so, so proud of all of the work that you've done throughout the course of your life. And um, I was just so thrilled you know, to pick up your book. And it's just incredible. And um, my question to you, uh, Huma, you know, in all of the years that I've known you, and I think the American public you know, has known you, you've been very, very, very private. Um, you know, there wasn't really much said about you, except when the Islamophobia industry decided <laughs> to write about you and attack you. And, you know, the question I have for you is, how did you get yourself to actually, you know, decide to write this book, right? Because what I found to be incredible was you shared so many personal stories, you know, about yourself, your family, your marriage, you know, uh, a lot of painful things, right, that you went through with Anthony Weiner and just a whole, like you just opened up and it's hard for people to open up, you know, when they've lived a life that um, has been very private in the public, you know, how did you get yourself to finally say, I'm going to do this? Because the last question when Duster asked was about women in politics and how hard, um, how hard it is. I do want to uh, share something that didn't stay in the book, but um, right after the 2016 presidential election, uh, a friend of mine, Anna Wintour, took me to dinner and, uh, and over a dinner where I ate two salads, two entrees and two desserts, only to realize how little I'd eaten. Um, she's, the first thing she said to me is, you know, you need to get your life back on track and you should write your book. You have an extraordinary story. You should tell your story. And I thought it was a terrible idea to the point you make, Debbie. I mm -hmm. am a private person. I'm not only a private person, 
I am terrified of public speaking. I am terrified. I was that person that when Debbie would come to events in Michigan, where I would go to Michigan for events during the 2016 campaign, I would be vi- like physically ill at the idea that I had to open my mouth and be in a room with 10 people, 15 people, 20 people. So I, I said to Anna, no, no, I want to go back to reclaim, reclaiming my life. I'm not going to write my story. I saw Hillary the next day, told her the same thing. She said, great idea. You should write your story. I also dismissed it. It was only when I went to lunch with a man who was giving me professional advice about seven months later. And I mentioned to him, I said, you know, a few people, several people have suggested I write my book. And he looked at me with legitimate shock on his face. And he said, why would you do that? I said, well, it's, you know, I think it's a good story. He says, I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, you know, terrible idea. I mean, number one, you're never going to be able to answer all these questions about Hillary and about your life. And, you know, I think people are done reading about scandal. So I would not do it. And I walked out of that lunch, Debbie. I was writing this book. It was when somebody told me that the story was not worthy, that I was not worthy, that it made me want to put it down. And I started, and Hillary hates when I say this, but I basically started vomiting on paper. I just wrote, poured everything out and found that whole experience, tremendous therapy. And even for me, I mean, I am, every one of my events I go to in the last three weeks, there's somebody who cries. Because to make that connection, we all go through, I am now doing the thing that scares me the most, which is being out in the world and sharing my story. And I've loved it. I mean, I find it so rewarding. And if I can help one person, five people, you know, young women who are trying to figure out how to make it in this world, people who've been in challenging relationships, because I think a lot of what I went through, and maybe this is why the book is resonating, um, is... uh, actually, unfortunately, not that unique. People go through these kinds of trials in their life. I just had to do it on the public stage. And um, so that's how it came to be. And the finished product, you know, I, I, to some extent, to summarize, the book is kind of a love letter to my father, who I lost when I was 17. I was very close to him. And, um, you know, he did get it managed to, he did get a kidney transplant. But for me, it's, I want to be able to, if I could have one more conversation with him and say, look, this is what I did. And I hope you're proud of me. I'm sure he's extremely proud of you, as well as your mother, your brother, your extended family, and of course, you know, our entire community, those who know you personally. Um, and I'm curious, so so what what next? What next? You published this book, what next? And maybe that's a question that Vanessa has for you, but you know, we, we want you, we want you in the public life, we want you, we want your leadership because. You have so much to offer, um, and we want to see you being in a, a, a bigger and better place. Well, you know, one of the, I appreciate your saying that. And one of the, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the story is because I did feel for the last 25 years, somebody else, she says this, she believes that and was, you know, basically writing my history. And I wanted to reclaim that. And um, so because I have been so no, 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 let me just ask my brother, no to everything, not doing this. I'm not saying that I'm not doing this. And I, so I've changed my entire approach and I've stolen this line from Shonda Rhimes, which is, this is my year of saying yes. And so I really want to be open to new opportunities and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm finding, I'm finding it a little bit overwhelming in the moment, but I really do hope that maybe I could get on a plane, fly to see you, and maybe you can give me some advice on what I should be doing, but I'm all about, you know, trying to figure out, uh, how to help, uh, you know, once you've been in public service, it's hard to find that kind of gratification in other spaces and places, but I, I hope I can. I will. 
I'm, I'm fairly confident about that right now. I'm, I'm just really enjoying the space that I'm in. And, and I'm very confident and I'm always here for you, Huma, always 24 seven and Thank be you. happy to sit down with you and, and talk about what you should do next. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us again, Debbie. Absolutely. Huma, the, the conflict in the Balkans is something you've mentioned being deeply concerned about. A legacy of your father's wisdom on how dangerous ethnic and religious divides can be used to separate us rather than seen as a strength for society. With tensions escalating in Bosnia, do you still believe the US can and should play the role of a mediator, considering in the past this hasn't been particularly successful? Well, you know, it is why uh, one of the many reasons the book is called Both Hand. Uh, it is complicated. It is, I don't think there is black or white in, in, in many of these situations. Uh, it's why I write about um, flying to Pakistan in 2009 with Hillary's Secretary of State. Uh, and the, the conflict I felt within, knowing how my family lived in Pakistan felt, knowing, you know, the United States um, had such a low um, uh, favorability in that country amongst others. This is a, 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 such a large question that I've certainly um, uh, considered for a, a, my entire life in public service. Is America the problem or the solution? We seem to be called in to mediate, to help. I mean, I grew up in the Clinton years of Middle East peace process, which now I believe if Yasser Arafat had taken that deal, maybe maybe that part of the world would have been a little bit different, but we'll never know. I do believe that engagement is important. Having a seat at the table is important. But I think if we've learned anything from Afghanistan, it's that you can't go into another country and tell them how to create a government and uh, how to build a democracy that is based on a Western style democracy. It's so, so much more complicated. And you are exactly right. My father was prescient about what was happening um, in the former Yugoslavia and uh, uh, was especially concerned about the Muslim minority condition, just as, by the way, as he was about the Rohingyas um, in Myanmar and the Uyghurs in China and throughout the world. I mean, young Muslim American, sorry, young Muslims in Europe, in Europe, in the UK and in France, and this, you know, Farah Pandit, who is the you know special representative for Muslim communities, and Rashad Hussein, both of whom I was honored to serve with in the Obama administration, traveling the world to try and build programs and engagement and dialogue. Um, I don't believe there's a, I don't believe there's any way. And I came of age in the world where as the United States and other uh, allies were trying to decide what to do in K Kosovo after the atrocity that was Bosnia, uh, this notion of could, could, could the West see a Muslim majority population country in that you know, part of the world I think that was a real, no one, no one said those words then, but I wondered if they believed it. And I think the only way forward is figuring out the balance. I don't think we can go in and just, you know, do what we've done in the past. I don't think it, it has worked. I mean, look at Iraq, look at Afghanistan. Um, but I don't, I don't see how uh, America can be successful as an isolationist country. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Look what's happening. Like look what, look what the Trump administration, in my opinion, created in this world. I mean, we're, um, look at what happened in Glasgow. I mean, this is, this administration has a lot of work to do to participate uh, on the international stage to build back 
uh, what, you know, what we had. I'm not saying it's perfect. I don't think my parents even believed it was perfect when they came here in the 60s. But the ideals upon which this country was built on, I think means we have a responsibility to engage and help where we can. Thank you. Um, next, we have a member of the UK Parliament, Dr. Oh, Rosanna wow. Khan. She's a member of Parliament for Tooting in London. She's also Shadow Secretary of State for Mental Health and part of the, the Cabinet, Labour Party Shadow Cabinet. Welcome, Rosanna. Oh, thank you. I have been so inspired by your journey and so inspired by what I've heard here today already. And you know, thank you so much, Madassa, for inviting me to be part of this wonderful event. And uh, oh my gosh, I have so many questions, but what I would really like to know, so me personally, I am of Polish Pakistani heritage, dad Pakistani, mum Polish. I chose to be a Muslim, um, even coming from, from a mixed background. And I had a very, um, quick entry into politics and what is sort of described as quite a quick and unexpected rise and I'm always constantly being told that I don't fit in that I should have lost the Asian part of my surname and instead of being um, Rosanna Allen Khan I should have called myself Rosie Allen because I would experience less Islamophobia and be more likely to be elected or to you know climb up the greasy pole of politics by losing part of my identity and I've always back against that and now I'm raising two little girls and they have Muslim names and they're they're mixed race as well and I guess my question to you is this what advice would you have for a woman in politics a non-white Muslim woman in politics who's constantly told that she doesn't fit in or in any other line of work actually how would you fight back against that narrative and inspire people to believe that they can fulfill their potential regardless of what people have to say about their religion or ethnicity? Well, first of all, I'm honored that you're on. Oh. Second of all, uh, I don't even need to tell you, but your existence, your extraordinary rise yourself is defying everything people are telling you because one of the many reasons you are extraordinary, you are both and. I mean, this is the, you know, the title of my book is is being both and and being confident um, in those roots. I mean, for me, I think uh, my father uh, had this tradition. He, he had a lot of plants in our house and um, he would say people are like plants and a plant is only as good as its roots. And if you nourish the soil and you take care of the roots, the plant is actually gonna be okay. And I really believe that, you know, I share the story of moving to the United States for the first time when I was 17. And my father said, it's going to be a revolution living in a sort of Muslim majority country and then moving yeah. to the United States the first time. And honestly, it really was because I did think I bypassed a lot of the experiences I might've had if I'd stayed in Michigan. Um, just the nature of what it is like uh, growing up here is it, it may have been um, for you, but what it seems we both have in common is having a real connection to those roots. And I try not to listen to the naysayers because believe me, I'm sure there are naysayers. I do think the only way forward is having more of people like you and me yeah. and doing it the way you're doing it, to be so out there, so um, uh, unafraid. I think fear you know, one of the, whenever I sign my book to a young woman who's shaking and doesn't know what they want to do, I always say, do the thing that scares you the most. It's probably going to be worth it. And I wonder, I suspect you've had that moment where you have been terrified about what you're about to do. 
and you've still done it and look at what you're doing and you're just the beginning of your career. Thank you. Um, and surrounding yourself with people who are supportive, I think it's one of the best things I had. And I don't know enough about sort of the politics in your immediate space, but in, I have a whole chapter in my book called Hillary Land. And it, is a, and it was and is an environment where professionally you had, I had a support structure around me so that my differences were actually welcomed. I hope you can tune some of that out and um, know that you have so many people looking to you for that leadership and, um, and frankly, counting on you. I know that makes, puts a lot of responsibility on you, but <laughs> we're lucky. We're so lucky that you're doing this because oh, thanks. we need it. I mean, thank you. And, and actually, you know, I'll be really honest that like Modessa has been um, incredible throughout my, my whole journey. And I think for me, it, it, it's, a bit, it's been a very vulnerable space because I didn't plan to go into politics. So overnight, standing in a seat that the, you know, at London mayor, when he became the mayor, yeah. suddenly vacated, it was in my town. And then finding yourself in the newspapers and people saying the most horrible things about you because you're a Muslim or trying to embarrass oh, yeah. the way you live your life as a Muslim. And, and, you know, not being white enough, not being Asian enough, not being Muslim enough, being too Muslim. It is, yeah. It's a very vulnerable space. And I think, I think what I get from what you're saying and some of the things that I have tried to sort of take on board is, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or what their definition of me is. The only thing that matters is, is me and my relationship with Allah and my, my yeah. deen and my faith. And, yes. and actually, so that is worth 100 colleagues. One, I don't know if this is helpful or not, because I've had a lot of really horrible things, obviously, said and written about me over the years. In fact, my staff, when we were preparing to write this book, they said, you know, we've been searching all the articles. I don't read anything about myself, just so you know. I don't read anything, it's watch anything. Advice, you know, Hassan watches everything for me and then tells me what I did well, my brother, what I did well and didn't do well, my mom, but I don't. But when they started researching this book, they said the most common headline about you from the last 15 years is what is wrong with her, okay? And number two is what is she thinking? So I wrote exactly what I was thinking. But to the point that you made, about your faith and having that, because I say this to all my non-Muslim, you know, friends or conversations that I have in that, you know, what is, what is Muslim prayer? It's essentially stepping back from the world. It's a meditation. Yeah, it's stepping it back from the world, having that singular communication between you and a higher power That's it. and reflecting on your deeds, your actions and intentions. But no one has asked me to say this. And I know most much of my book by heart, but you know, I opened my book with a letter from my father that I found um, after he had passed. And if Modesta will allow me to, it's very short, but you know, what he wrote, um, whatever, uh, I'm gonna summarize it, but this is why this I think will speak to you too. Whatever the provocation, it should not influence you to act in an unbecoming manner. You have to be fair, honest, and direct. If you can't stand the heat, then as Truman said, get out of the kitchen, but your exit should be graceful, decent, and above board. Let others do what they will, you are responsible in the first instance to yourself, your principles and values, and ultimately to Yahweh is what my father wrote, Allah. Um, oh. And that's really what it, you know, that I think in yeah. so many ways summarizes like how we should make our way in this world. Now, um, reading the book, I can imagine that many women and Muslim women or second generation immigrants in particular relate to the challenges that you had reconciling professional ambitions with the desire to find a supportive partner to start a family with. Race, religion, social media, and even just growing older all compound this in many different ways. Knowing what you know now, what would be your advice to others in similar situations? What I know now. I do think that the advice my father gave me 
that a good life is a balanced life is good advice. I did not follow it. I did not have a balanced life. My job was my life. I write a chapter in the book that starts, uh, it's called Calling White House Signal about a family wedding uh, I was about to attend 25 years ago and getting a call. I was a newly, uh, new White House staff person. And they called me and said, do you wanna go to Argentina? You have to leave tomorrow. And I said, yes. And I always said, yes. And I write about that proverbial fork in the road, making that choice between family and work. And I always pick work for a really long time. I missed family weddings. I missed my nieces and nephews' births. I sort of miss that, you know, that uh, connection. And uh, as I write in the book, I wasn't even looking necessarily to get married. I joke about uh, my mother would tell people, oh, you want my daughter to give up uh, her job at the White House or the State Department and like move to Ohio to be a doctor's wife. Good luck with that. I mean, I, I was lucky in that my parents also, all they said to us is we just require that you be educated. Beyond that, you can do whatever you want. So I wasn't actually looking for love or looking to get married. It kind of fell upon me. Um, and there were not a lot of, uh, you know, people who were like me in, in, in my part of the world. And so I fell in love with Anthony kind of by accident. Um, and uh, a lot of my friends who read the book didn't understand this part, but I think anyone with a Muslim background um, would understand it. I didn't, it wasn't, you know, uh, Anthony was my first love. He was the first man I was ever with, the person I married. And um, so I didn't have the kind of romantic experiences that uh, a lot of uh, uh, other people in this uh, country have. It did not turn out so well as uh, you've read in the book, um, but I can't say I have any regrets because I have my son and he's the most important thing in my life. And I can't imagine he's the reason I live. Um, but I would say balance is really important. And then finding that connection with, you know, if you can find a life partner who has these, has common values and principles, it really, um, I don't think it's easy to find in my, at least in my opinion, it wasn't easy to find not in politics, but when you find it, all my siblings have found it. And I write in the book, how jealous I have been of their uh, life and love stories and their life partners and how happy I am for them. Thank you, Hilbert. Now um, we have uh, Summer Koken joining us. Summer is Chief of Staff at Columbia's University Division of Natural Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us, Summer. Over to you. Thank you, Madasar. Uh, Homa, first of all, congratulations and thank you for writing this book. Um, you know, as a fellow South Asian woman, uh, a mother, um, and someone who's had my fair share of personal trials while pursuing a demanding career, when you say that your story is unique and yet that it's not singular, that deeply resonates with me. And at the same time, as you said, your book is called Both And, and yet it seems that you're often presented by others and are placed in situations as an either or. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that story when you were talking to Debbie about uh, when you talked to Anna Wintour, who is a personal mentor of yours, and, and what compelled you to share this story, this story that you've written um, with the idea that if you don't tell your story, somebody else will. And yet there are critics, even now, who have said you haven't shared enough. And so I'm not concerned with that here in this question, but you know, as someone who has had to confront the astounding and sometimes humorous difference between what others say versus the complex reality of my actual lived experiences, uh, like many other women and people, what I'm interested in is how did you find your voice while also determining your personal red lines between what remains private versus what parts of your story are those that you choose to share with the world? 
And following up to Debbie's question, you told us about what this book does for others, maybe even allowing, you know, one or many more people to connect to your story and, and see themselves in it. But what I'd like to know is what did this book do for you? And so is it a reconciliation? Did writing the story allow you to place something behind you or does it allow you to move somewhere forward? Um, and are you speaking to yourself in the book? Or are you speaking to someone else? So I'd love to hear how you perceive your motivation for what compelled you to write it when you started um, versus where you are right now, now that you're the other side of sharing it. And so what do you hope this process does for Huma into the future? So the book was called, first of all, I didn't, I love it. I've, I love my interviews when, when people ask me, not you, when people say, well, your critics say, and uh, um, I just find that, I just find that funny. But for a long time, this book was called Bracing. My editor hated the title. Pretty much everyone I've told hates that title, but it was called Bracing for two reasons at its inception. Number one, because number I feel as though I have been the support for so many other people in my life, my, my parents, my, you know, Hillary, Anthony, I was always in the background, you know, but it was also my state of being. Uh, I was always bracing for the next story, the next accusation, the next FBI interview, the next, you know, investigation, uh, the next tabloid uh, every day, every day for uh, as far back as I can remember. And when I started writing uh, the story, number one, I, I was surprised at how much I loved writing. The actual, I do have my own voice. I have a very specific kind of writing. And at one point they thought maybe you need a ghostwriter. And it just, it didn't, it, it's such a personal book. I chose to share just about everything. The book was longer, but as, as you know, you know, since you've, it sounds like you've read it, it is already long. So there are certain things that, uh, that were cut, but I wouldn't say that there was anything that I felt strongly about uh, that I did cut out. I know people are upset that maybe I'm not critical enough, not, you know, I don't say enough negative things about uh, certain people, but, or at least that's what I'm suspecting. But to go from the, a constant state of what's going to happen and how bad is it going to be and how am I going to survive? And I write in summer, we don't know each other and I don't, I don't know your story, but my, I have two chapters in the book. One's called Shame, Shame, Go Away. And the other is Elephant in the Room is that I lived in trauma and shame and public shame for a really long time. I was that person that when I walked into the room, uh, people stopped talking uh, or I was asked not to come to parties or I was asked not to go to charity um, organizations because it was too much of a distraction. That does something to you, especially when you were somebody who walks in a space with a lot of confidence in the work that you do and the human uh, that you are. And it took me to a very, very low place. This is particularly after the 2016 election, I felt very isolated, very lonely. I was a single mother when Anthony was in prison. Um, for a period of time. And that was really hard. I mean, I think single parents are heroes, she rose, they rose. It's unbelievable uh, what they do. And my faith is what saved me. Having a supportive family and, and friends saved me, but also getting professional help saved me. I had to get to the other side. And so now I am this person that is sitting on this Zoom and not shaking and didn't have to let go and you know, uh, stop violently shaking before I got on. I, I feel an unburdening. My, my staff has actually commented. They said, there's this sort of lightness of being to you that we just haven't seen in a, in a, in a really long time. And uh, a big part of that has been my recovery. My father was my age 
He was 46 years old when he was told he had five to 10 years. And I think about what he did in that time, which was extraordinary. Move to another country, have another baby, start a foundation, a, a world respected journal. And so for me, I think I have a whole second, maybe third chapter of extraordinary opportunity in, you know, professionally, personally. And to say that, to even be able to say those words to you is pretty empowering. <laughs> well, thank you, Ramad. That was, that was really, really lovely. And, and I think just, again, you know, just echoing the point on, you know, with Muslim women particularly, is to hear someone very honestly confront all of it is it's just I want so much more of that so thank you for starting that process thank you I really thank appreciate you. that thank you. thank you so much now since we're almost at the end of the event and we've certainly covered a lot of ground here I'd last I'd like to ask you Huma for any concluding remarks anything you'd like to share with us and our audience we're all we're, we're all of course going to buy the book if we haven't already but other than that is there anything else you'd like to to share well, I hope people do buy the book and read the story. And one of the biggest messages I hope um, people will take away is the importance of making connections. Uh, the fact that we are so much more connected in ways that we don't even realize across countries, across, I share a story in a book about uh, a woman who read an article, a profile of me in 2007 that I only thought my mother would read. And, you know, 15 years later, she wanted to host a fundraiser for Hillary because she read a story, an article about, you know, a brown Muslim woman in Vogue that she thought was, you know, pretty unusual and she wanted, you know, to help this person. But again, the importance of making connections, staying connected, understanding, because for me, at least in this country, I feel as though we are living in an increasingly either or world. And that terrifies me for my son. Uh, and that's everything from how we conduct ourselves in politics and the public space um, how, you know, women's rights in this country are being rolled back, uh, how we're leaving an earth that is far more treacherous, um, devastating in some ways for our children. So how are we going to create leaders and participate in that leadership space in a way that we can come together nationally, but really internationally to create a better future for our children and grandchildren? Thank you for joining us for this episode of PR Unmasked with Madassa Ahmed by Unitas Communications. I hope you learned something valuable with this episode. I certainly did. Stay tuned.